All right, we're going to be in, um, in the book of Revelation, continuing our, our journey through that book. But I want to read for you a, a passage from another book. And even before I do that, I want, you to, I want you to fix a person in your mind. I want you to think in your mind of somebody that you know, maybe somebody even very close to you, um, who just refuses to come to know Christ. Somebody that you love, somebody that you would really, man, just long to have them know Jesus, and it just seems like stubbornly they will not. But put somebody in your mind. Don't make this abstract or vague. Like, have somebody in your mind. Because I think the scriptures today are going to help us understand what exactly is going on in the hearts of some who just, just will not come to faith in Jesus. I want to start, actually, not in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read a couple of verses for you from the book of Acts, chapter 17, and I'll have it on the screen as well. But in Acts 17, it says this, verse 26, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Okay. What it's saying is God has determined where you would be born, when you would be born. He's determined all that. Now, why? Verse 27. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own prophets have said, poets have said, we are also his offspring. And he's saying, God in just his rich goodness, his generosity, has set it up, has set you up to know him. And once you discover him, you realize, oh, he's been there all along. And I've, I, you look back over your life, oh, he was trying to kind of intercept me. And all these times, he was right there, just right at my fingertips kind of a thing, right? Jesus teaches us that, that God, in his, in his just kindness and generosity, sends down the rain on the wicked and the good, right? He's, he's constantly taking care of people who don't even acknowledge him. But here's the really kind of tragic thing is a lot of people go through their whole life and they, you know, breathe the air that God has given them to breathe and they eat the food that has been provided. They go to the job that has been provided. for. They, they take advantage of all of God's just generosity, just keep filling their lives with all sorts of good things and never actually acknowledge the one that's done that for them. Romans 1 talks about this. It, it says, they refused to give thanks. Like one of the strongest indictments to humanity is our ability to just receive and receive and, and refuse to give things. Now, I, to some of you parents who have young ones, and you know how that is if, if you just give and give and you give them all their meals and you clean up after them and you wash their clothes. You know, and every now and then, aren't you just like, uh, you know, you put the plate down in front of them, you kind of stand there awkwardly, right? Like, are you going to give me anything? No, no, just how about this? Thank you? Just, just give me a moment. Just humor me with a little thank you here, right? Well, here's what I'm saying. That's not just a kid thing. The Bible says that's, that's humanity. God just gives, 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 and we just refuse to give thanks. And so sometimes if, if you've got that person in your mind that has maybe been given so much and they refuse to give thanks, to, to take a knee before Jesus, sometimes we'll do this. We'll, we'll take it to the next level and we'll pray this scary prayer. God, whatever it takes, will you bring them to yourself? Now, why is that a scary prayer? And why do we hold back before we pray that scary prayer? Because you and I know that often 
It's in suffering that we kind of wake up and realize that we need God, right? It's in the trials of life. And so you pray that scary prayer, God, will you kind of pull the rug out from under him? Will you do? But then, guys, I don't know if you've been through this. Some of you really love. The suffering actually does happen to them. Maybe they get sick. Maybe there's a divorce. Maybe there's a loss of a job. Whatever it is, some, some kind of real trial hits them. And so now you're waiting like, ah, and they still don't come to know Jesus. So what? Like, if God's generosity and his kindness pouring over them doesn't alert them, if the trial and, and the suffering and the emptiness or loneliness or whatever that is doesn't do it, what's the problem? <laughs> All right, I'm about to drop on you probably the darkest big idea of a sermon that I think I've ever given. Here it is, ready? Guys, people don't come to Jesus because they don't want to. That's as bold and simple as it is. You could stack up more and more goodness, maybe pull more and more rugs out from under them, and at the end of the day, people don't come to Jesus because they don't want to. Now, we're going to get to some hope, okay? So now that I've killed the whole atmosphere in here with that, that dark sentiment, I think what we're going to find is God is still going to relentlessly come after us, okay? That's what we're going to discover as we jump into Revelation chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible or your app, we're going to go uh, starting in Revelation chapter 8 as we continue our journey through this uh, incredible book. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay, I barely got to eight seconds, and I have to count. <laughs> I hate silence so much, I had to count it off in my head. I don't even think I got to eight. Anyway, what happens when there's just dead silence? What's going on? What's, right? It, silence is like foreboding. You, you try to fill that silence with, just imagine this, all the stuff that's going on through the book of Revelation, and this chapter starts off with all of heaven goes silent for 30 minutes. Understand, that even means all the angelic choirs. In fact, James was even talking about this earlier. All the choirs of heaven that we find out in chapter 4 are singing, holy, holy, holy. Even the anthems of the choirs, everything goes silent and still. Why? Well, one, I think that pause is very intentional to, to kind of capture the attention of everybody to, to lean in. But it's also going to be, I think, one more expression of God's just patience, long-suffering, waiting. So, so here's what happens. Okay. Open the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. By the way, was anybody else uncomfortable when I was silent? I was, I was, I was, I was going to start sweating. It was eight seconds. Anyway, silence in heaven. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. And he was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. 
Then the angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, this is just the prelude here. But, you know, James already was talking about this during, during our worship time, that these prayers of the saints, like a fragrance, like, like going up in, into the throne room. We, we find out uh, just one chapter again, this, this, uh, this idea of the prayers of the saints filling God's throne room is actually peppered throughout the whole book. But yet last week, we saw this in chapter 6. It says this in verse 9, chapter 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. That word slaughtered, that's not a strong word. I'm so glad that this version has that because that's what the Greek word means. They were slaughtered. Why? Because they kept speaking the word of God, the testimony about Jesus. And they cried out, right, to the, to the Lord, how long, how long until you judge? And he says, verse 11, they were given a white robe and they were told, no, just rest a little while longer. Just keep waiting until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Guys, here, here's at least part of, of the prayers, at least one aspect of the prayers is how long, how long? But, but remember, why are these people being slaughtered? Why are these people up in heaven now and, and praying this and, and filling God's throne room with these, these prayers? What had they been doing? Speaking about Jesus. And God is saying, no, there's more yet to be slaughtered, but it's not because he's waiting for more to be slaughtered just for the slaughter's sake. It's because as they're going out, they're speaking about Jesus. Like the, the word keeps going out, and he's like, no, 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 not yet. I want the word to keep going out. Not yet. There's more witnessing to be done. Not yet. Now, they're going to get killed along the way for sure. They're going to be here, but not yet. The, the end judgment is not yet because God, you know, I, I love this in 2 Peter 3. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. Like, come on. It's not that he's just slow in that way. No, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Remember, even back in Acts 17, just he's right there. Come, come to repentance. Now, this is hard to swallow, you guys, but it seems in this passage, and now we'll move on after this, but it seems in this passage that our prayers are actually fueling the judgment of God, Right? The prayers go up, and it's almost like as he's listening to the prayers, how long, Lord, Lord? Even, you guys, when we pray through the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven, right? We're praying those kind of prayers like, Lord, can you not get it done, <laughs> right? We're, we're just ready for the curtain to fall and for this all to be, we just want to be with Jesus. We want this whole thing to be done, and it seems at least, I don't know any other way to Read this, that the prayers of the saints are actually kind of greasing the skids for judgment to come. Wow, we don't think of our prayers kind of pushing God's judgment forward, but that seems to be what's, what's going on. So let's look at what happens. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow, trumpets, you know, being a call to war. I mean, all the way up until, honestly, just a generation or two ago, that's what trumpets were used for primarily is to signal 
other you know, units around and that kind of thing. It's a wartime trumpeting that's going on. So the first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. Just like our prayers and that incense were hurled to the earth, right? Hurled to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees burned up. All the green grass burned up. Second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became a blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It, it fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blast that the angels are about to sound. Now, Chapter 8 has this very apocryphal language, right? Uh, almost like so out there that, that it kind of takes you back. Such colorful language. Even this idea of a third of so many things, right? Fifteen times this idea of a third keeps being repeated. It, just all the way through. A third of this, a third of that. So some of that might, might be describing, you know, phenomena that, is intentionally elaborate, intentionally kind of colorful, kind of what it felt like, right? It seemed like a third because here, here's what we know. S some of it, for instance, when you look at the sun being struck, a third of the sun being struck, well, we know for sure that a third of the sun wasn't just like gouged away or whatever because that would make life on this planet uninhabitable, right? If a third, so, so whatever it was, whatever phenomenon it was, it was like a third of the light coming from the sun is dimming, you know, and a third of the sky. So whatever it is that's going on in this apocryphal language, he's, he's trying to capture words to describe all this is going on. But here's what I don't want you to do because it's apocryphal language. Don't dismiss it as just kind of fantasy or something. Real devastation is happening on the earth, even if we don't understand exactly what it will look like. So I, I decided to do a little bit of a deep dive into when has the earth actually received stuff like this? And here's what I found out. Just as an example, back in the Middle Ages, maybe some of you have heard of the Great Famine. The Great Famine in the mid-early 1300s, the famine was so severe, you guys, that they estimate anywhere from 30 upwards to 60% of the population of Europe was wiped out in this famine. In fact, it swung all the way down to the Middle East. They, they estimate that a third of the population of the entire Middle East died in that famine. That's how severe it was. They estimate that somewhere between 60 and 80% of the livestock the cattle, the sheep, etc., died during that famine. And then that's not actually even the worst of it. About 30 years later, the bubonic plague, you've heard of the bubonic plague, hit all of Europe. And again, about a third of the population died from this fever and these 
boils. I mean, it would be something like you'd read out of Revelation or the, the plagues of Egypt or, or something like that. That happened, right? And even now, even not, you don't have to go way into ancient past. Even now, you guys, if you look at the images of what's going on in the Horn of Africa, you know, on the east side where it kind of juts out into the ocean, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, the famine that is going on in the Horn of Africa even now is so severe that you would almost, when you see some images, think apocryphal. If you look at some of the cities laid waste in eastern Ukraine, you would think, is this apocryphal? This is like devastating stuff, right? So I don't want you to dismiss the apocryphal language as if it's just, you know, metaphor or something like that. Real devastation is happening, right? But now things get actually really supernatural when we turn to chapter 9. So go to chapter 9 with me, and I want you to see all this is happening. And then this is why the eagle says, oh, man, it's almost like there's, that's nothing yet. As devastating as it was, now he says, now watch out. So verse 1 of chapter 9, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. Now, this star is probably an angel. Revelation 1, the stars in his right hand are the angels, right? So this angel comes. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him, and he opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Now, I do want to hit pause for a second and say, if you're really curious, like, what is this abyss and where are these things? Well, jump into VST, because we actually have one whole episode <laughs> that we kind of talk about this thing and how it's anchored way back into the earliest pages of the scripture. But, but for, if you've never taken VST, at least now, just know this, there's a shaft opened in the earth, and out of it comes, now look at verse 3, locusts came out of the smoke on the earth. And power was given to them, like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will actually long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, what's going on here? Guys, all of a sudden, it, it, I feel like in this part of the passage, it's what God is saying is, okay, earth, okay, you know, children of earth, no more human explanations for what's going on. Like all the stuff that's happened before, you might be saying to yourself, oh, well, we've seen famine before. We've seen bad water before. We've seen, you know, and so we can come up with some materialist way, some explanation for that kind of stuff, right? So now God's going to say, oh, okay, now I'm going to cause things to happen in such a way that there is no natural explanation possible. Like entomologists are going to look at these locusts at this time and be like, they're searching every journal, every historical thing. of it. Locusts are on literally every continent except Antarctica, right? They're plentiful. We know a lot about locusts. There has never been a locust like this, okay? It defies any kind of naturalist explanation. These locusts emerge from a shaft in the earth, Okay, yeah, locusts and grasshoppers, yeah, they might lay their eggs in some dirt somewhere, but the earth doesn't open up 
and all of a sudden locusts come out of it. So the, the, even where they come from defies everything. And get this, look again. These locusts specifically don't eat grass. And then he goes further. They don't eat plants. They don't eat trees. What do locusts do globally? What do they do? Why are they devastating when they come en masse? They eat our food source. They eat everything green, right? And so specifically, he says, oh, not these locusts. No. They're actually not vegetarians at all. (laughs) They only prey on people. But they don't eat people. They just sting them. They just oppress them. They just cause all sorts of pain. It's just crazy. Oh, wait. Not all people. In fact, the only people that don't get stung by these locusts are God's people. The ones with the seal. It says there, right? The seal of God. So what's with that? Well, Mark talked about it last week. I want to say again, these these are the people that God has redeemed. As the witness has gone out, as all those people who would eventually get killed for their witnessing, but some people are coming to Christ, they've got this mark on them. Well, Ephesians 1 gives us another little window into what this seal, the seal of God is on them. I'm just going to read a couple verses out of Ephesians 1. Verse 7 says, In him, in Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, right? We, we find forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. Verse 11, in Jesus, we have received an inheritance. There's, there's something more, something we're going to gain one day. Verse 13, in him, I love all the language of in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, you were also sealed. Here's that same language. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, when the gospel, you heard the gospel And when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like this down payment. I love that language. A down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. It's like saying, no, you're mine. You're mine. I've got you. And even if things go bad, I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to complete this work. And that inheritance is, is sure for you. Guys, here's what's crazy. Every other thing that maybe has come to the earth, there might be some kind of explanation for it, some naturalist way. Well, now all of a sudden things are coming that there's no way. Where are these locusts from? How they are? And wait, how is it that only those people who have given their lives to Jesus are immune from getting these stings or whatever? Like, how does that even make sense, right? There's no other way to understand it other than There has to be something supernatural going on here. Supernatural, outside of natural, right? Even then, the explanation of what they look like. Verse 7, the appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, something like golden crowns. The reason the word like just keeps coming over and over is because it's like something we've never seen before. Hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth. It's like he's trying to say, I've never seen anything like this. They even... Verse 11, they even have a king, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, in Greek, Apollyon. Still more woes to come, but here's what he's saying. He goes, nothing like this has ever occurred before. There's no explanation. I don't even have words to describe what these things are. There's something supernatural. Wake up, world. This is not something natural. There's a God at work. The only other time that I can think of that God has pulled off something like this 
If you remember the book of Exodus, when the plagues are going on in Egypt, starting, like if you want to look, uh, Exodus 8-ish, somewhere in there, chapters 8 through 11, I think. And all of a sudden, the plagues are going out, and then all of a sudden, he's like, except Goshen. Do you remember Goshen is the, the settlement where the Israelites all stayed? And so the series of plagues that comes, once he said, no, around the border of Goshen, the plagues will come, but not there. So hail starts coming, and literally 360 degrees all the way around, hail coming down, except Goshen. Flies start coming in, infesting. Oh, not Goshen. You guys, how many of you, of you maybe have neighbors where there's flies or mosquitoes or whatever, but not your yard? Well, no. If they're at your neighbors, if you're surrounded by flies or mosquitoes, they're going to invade your yard too. No, not Goshen. They, they never came. Livestock started dying all the way around. Not Goshen. It gets really wild. Locusts, once again, when would a locust ever be like, oh, I don't cross that street. Sorry, I'm going to go back this way. No, of course not, right? But just the perimeter, right around Goshen. No, it got even weirder. Light. God made all of Egypt dark. They couldn't even light a lamp. It would go out. And then they'd look over, and there's this glow coming out of Goshen, right? Somehow, miraculously, not even light would exist outside. But they're in Goshen all the way up until Passover, the firstborn. Those that sought their refuge in Jesus. Safety, but not outside of Goshen, right? Here's what I'm saying. It's like God is saying, Earth, will you acknowledge there's a God? These things are supernatural that's going on. And implicit in that is an invitation. Can you see where there is safety in Jesus? If you will listen to these witnesses going on who are telling you about Jesus, will you come? Because I'm telling you, there is protection in God. The very God who is bringing out all this judgment is also the God that you can flee to and find safety and security and a seal on your forehead to say, I am God's and he is mine and I will be safe and I will be delivered, right? It's this beautiful, glorious invitation. Come, come, come. I want to go to the last couple verses of chapter 9 because I asked you at the beginning, what will it take? What will it take for people to come to know Jesus? And there's actually some frightening verses at the end of our text today. Verse 20 of chapter 9. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. To stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, which cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot walk, and they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, their thefts. I want you to look really carefully at that because there's a phrase repeated twice. They did not repent. And they did not repent from two things. One, idolatry. That's just what we do as well as the ancient people did. We make a God, the kind of God that we're that we want. God, we, make it, we make him up. I don't like the God who is. I want the God who lets me do or thinks this way. So we fashion a God of our own. And then the second thing we, these guys did not repent of is just sin. Sin. Sin against others. Sin that's destructive. Because sin is just living as if there is no God at all. I'll never have to answer for anything, right? Just... Now, those two things are connected, okay? 
Idolatry and sin are connected inseparably, especially here in this text. Because when you refuse to bow to the God who created you and you start whipping up your own God, you have full license to be as hurtful to yourself or hurtful to others as you want to be, right? They're connected. The God I believe in would never judge me for dot, dot, dot. Oh, no, my God, my faith tells me dot, 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 right? And so we can go on doing whatever we want and justify it because we've made up our God, right? And therefore, I can sin boldly in any way that we want. And guys, after all, first, the goodness of God, giving us air to breathe, food to eat, that doesn't convince, we don't repent and want to know the God who's done so much for us. Seems like that should be enough. Nope. Devastation, trial, suffering, uh, unimaginable suffering, an explosion of supernatural activity that should awaken even the most cold-hearted, stubborn person. Nope. You probably get tired of me quoting C.S. Lewis, but you're going to have to put up with it again because, man, he nails it on this one. Okay, listen to this quote. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. What he's saying is, the people that end up in hell want to be away from God. Doors locked from the inside. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. But God's been so good to you. But look at life, breath, everything else. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Then flip it, right? Bad things happen. Trials happen, even an explosion of supernatural activity. La, 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 I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. They lock their condemnation from the inside. Isn't that a poignant, powerful word? Guys, people don't come to Jesus because they don't want to. And now I want to finish that, because they don't want to repent. People don't come to Jesus because they don't want to repent. They want to live as if they live in a world where they can make up God on their own terms. And they want to live in a world where they can do whatever they want and never have to give an account for it. The reason that people don't want to come to know Jesus is because they don't want to. And specifically, they don't want to repent. And yet, here's the beauty that I don't think I'd ever seen until this time through these chapters. The relentless invitation of God to draw people to himself. Because God, guys, I thought about this. I thought, the patience of God, why doesn't he just all at once say, you know what, I'm just done. Boom, final curtain drop. That's the way I do it, right? I've been patient, I've been waiting, boom, done. This God just keeps, the reason that these waves of judgment keep going on is because simultaneously he's sending out waves of people to witness to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who offers forgiveness no matter how bad things have been, no matter how relentless and stubborn people have been against God, if they will just turn to Jesus, he will immediately take them and give them the seal of God on their foreheads and welcome them in and pour out forgiveness, right? Just like the church of Laodicea, Jesus is saying, I'm standing outside and knock. If anybody will come and open the door, I'll come in with him and sup with him. Which is why I'm so, so glad that today of all days, a a day that we're looking at just so much judgment, is also a day that we're having communion together. Because you know what this communion table represents? 
the open invitation of Jesus Christ. There's always more room at the table, right? There's, there's always more room for people to finally respond. And so I want to have some time of prayer. Will you stand with me, actually? I just want to, let's... I'm just wondering if there's even somebody here this morning that you would say, actually, I've been that stubborn person. I've, I've had stacks of evidence. It's not because I'm waiting for more information. I don't want to repent. Guys, God is patient and holding out and holding out. You don't know when that patience ends. You don't know in this life right now what tomorrow will bring, right? And yet the invitation is there. Yet the invitation is open. And he's saying, please come. I want to welcome you to the table. And so let's pray together. And as we pray, if that's you, oh, please welcome Jesus in. Please. But also for all of us, I want you to think back on that person that you had in your mind when we first started. And I want you to pray. Oh, Jesus, bring them to repentance. Because, Jesus, what we realize is that's, that's the key. It's not more good things coming to them or more scary things to come to them. Jesus, like all of us, they need to repent. Turn away from this fantasy of a God of our own making and God as we want to define God that will always disappoint. It's just a shadow. It doesn't, doesn't really make any sense at all. And instead to realize there's a God of the universe who has given me life and breath and everything else. Jesus, thank you that you are so patient with me. Oh man, so patient. Help us to have patience with those around us, but also give us boldness to be those witnesses. You call us to be witnesses to point them to Jesus. May the lampstand of Veritas Church begin to burn even more brightly because we know you, we understand these things, and we want people to be welcomed to the table. I want them to know you. Oh, Jesus, give us a heart and a passion to point people to Jesus. God, we love you. We're so thankful. We actually stand in fear of you, the appropriate fear of you, and yet then we're drawn to you by your inescapable love. So we celebrate you now. In Christ's name.